All right, with that, I'm excited to start a new series today titled Letters to the Church, and we're going to be looking at the book of Ephesians, and we're going to be walking through this. If you're not familiar with the book of Ephesians, you will find it in your New Testament. It is written after Jesus' resurrection, and it's really written to one of the first churches that were established, and it was written by the Apostle Paul through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul was a follower of Jesus Christ who started churches all all over the world, and then he would write to them to encourage them in the faith. Obviously, in the first century, there was no internet, and everybody was happier, and everybody had a lot more peace in their life and a lot less stress, right? And so Paul would write letters to communicate to these churches because he couldn't be in all places at one time. And so, therefore, it's a, good, it's a good book for us to study today because we could have been one of the churches that Paul wrote to. When he would write to a church, they would read it in the church, and then they would send it on up the road to a different church, then they would read it, uh, and then they would send it on, and so forth. And so, what's amazing about the words that you'll find in Ephesians, and all of Scripture for that matter, is that they're still applicable for today because truth never changes. And so, the truth that, that Paul wrote to Ephesians, to the Ephesus church, is just as true as it is for us today, and it's applicable to our lives. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to first, or excuse me, turn to Ephesians chapter number one, and we're going to read verses one through verse 14. Ephesians chapter one, verses one through 14. And here's what the Bible says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through, our, through his blood for the forgiveness of our trespasses according to his riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory." Now, as you read that, you might be saying, wow, that's a little difficult to, uh, to read. He's approaching a lot of different topics in one passage of Scripture, and that would be correct. The book of Ephesians was written, originally written in Greek and then is translated into English, obviously, for our understanding. In the original Greek, everything that we just read would have been one long run-on sentence. Paul would have met, uh, failed modern English. How many of you are English just... You're terrible at English. You failed English in high school. 
I did. I failed English. In fact, I failed most subjects in high school, actually. I'm not that smart. I went to college. My college professor taught me a little bit about English. One thing I do know is that run-on sentences are a bad thing. And yet, that's exactly what Paul just did. It's one long sentence, but yet it has so many powerful truths and we need to narrow down what he's trying to say. And here's what the big idea of this passage. By God's grace, we're adopted children, therefore we worship. That's the response of the truth that we have been adopted into the family of God. We worship. Now, worship is something that we as believers are naturally inclined to do. Because when you look at the grace of God on your life, just like Macy sang that song, because of Jesus, my heart is clean. If you've ever felt the guilt and condemnation of your old life and then felt the forgiveness of Jesus, it makes you want to say, thank you, God, for setting me free from my old guilt and shame. It's a natural response to what God has done. And then as Pentecostals, we all love a good worship service anyways. Why? Because we tend to be a little bit more loud and exuberant in our worship. How many of you grew up in like old school Pentecostal churches? Yeah, there was some dancing like they used to put. I was thinking about this this morning when I was getting ready. They used to put the, the chairs on the platform for the pastors to sit in and they would sit over here. And I'm not sure why we had chairs on the platform. I'm glad we don't anymore. <laughs> Zach knows what I'm talking about. OK, so you had four chairs at this church I went to and every one of them had to be full. So if somebody was on vacation. We grabbed a deacon. If there was no deacons, we just found somebody because there was going to be four people in the seats. Right. And they stand there and they get excited and nobody ever buttoned their suit jackets. I don't know if they ate too much after Sunday or not, but they do this and they start dancing around and that jacket would start swinging around, you know, like this. Everybody gets excited. You guys know, if you don't know what I'm talking about, YouTube it because it's awesome, right? <laughs> we like a good worship service. Yet this entire passage is talking about worshiping God and he doesn't really reference singing at all. Why? Because worship is more than just singing, as we're going to see out of this. And what Paul has done is he's given us a lot of reasons to worship. We worship God because we are his sons and his daughters. Now, before we dive deep into this passage, we need to define what worship is. When you look at the word worship, we get a lot of different ideas. Many people would associate worship to singing in church, and that's true. Singing can be worship. We just had a time of worship to the Lord. However, worship is so much more than just singing. Worship is a lifestyle. It's the slant of your heart. You can sing the songs, but not be worshiping if your heart is out of tune with the words that you're saying. You can be singing the song on Sunday and mean it, but if you're living like a heathen Monday through Saturday, is it really worship on Sunday? And I submit to you that it's not because Romans 12 tells us that, that worship is a lifestyle where you surrender to Christ and you allow him to renew your mind daily. It's offering your bodies as living sacrifices. So we can sing to the Lord in worship, but we can live every day of our life as worship to to him. When you work hard at your job, not for the sake of men, but we work as unto Christ, it is worship. When we're generous, it's a fragrant offering to God that is worship. When we are his witnesses and we're telling other people what he has done in our life, it is worship. When we love our spouse well and we love our kids well, it is worship to God because it's reflecting God's nature to our families. All of those things and more are worship. worship 
worship is Christ-centered. And when you do anything for Christ, it is ultimately worship. And you can see that in the totality of Scripture through the New Testament. And when we realize that truth, it changes a lot of different things that we do and how we approach life. It's important to understand that a lot of us, we would say, you know, I don't, I don't like singing. I don't like hearing myself sing. I'm not sure how I feel about raising my hands in worship. So this stuff on Sunday morning feels unnatural to me. Well, you're definitely not alone. A lot of us would identify that. I don't like hearing myself sing, so I'm not singing loud on the front row. I, that's why I sit in front of people who can sing, so I have something to listen to behind me. You know what I mean? But I would encourage you this, to break out of the, the traditional understanding that worship happens on Sunday morning and see that worship is living a life of sacrifice to Christ. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, when you realize that all of life can be worship, when you do things to the Lord, and then you look at the truth of scripture, you see that we have a lot of reasons to live a lifestyle of worship. Imagine someone gave you a million dollars. What would you do? Well, first you would thank them. You would give them a hug. You'd be like, yes, and then you would tell everybody you know, guess what happened in my life? Man, somebody gave me a million dollars. Let's say it was $10 million. And then you know what you do? You're going to quit your job, right? And then you're going to go on vacation. You know, there's going to be a lifestyle change because you inherited a large sum of money. And what this scripture is saying is that there should be a lifestyle change in our hearts because we've inherited something so much more valuable than money, and that's the redemption of our souls. So with that, we're going to look at all the reasons why we have to worship today from this passage. And the first thing I want you to see is this. We worship because we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Verses 3 through 4 says this, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. As God's children, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Sometimes I like watching documentaries of super wealthy people and just the things that they do with life. And I always have this thought, what if you were their kids? Because a lot of super wealthy people, like they worked for what they have. Most people who are very wealthy in America, they didn't inherit it. They worked for it. But if you were their kid living in their house and you're like, you know, nine through 12, like like that fun age in life and your parents are multi-billionaires, like that'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? (laughs) Like that you're inheriting the benefit of your parents' wealth. And what this is telling us in scripture is that we're inheriting the benefit of our heavenly father's wealth in our life. There are spiritual blessings and we've been blessed with every single one of those blessings. As a child, as my son knocks, he has access to everything I own. Why? Because he is my child. He lives under my roof. So if I buy a new TV, he has a new TV. If I buy new furniture, he has a new furniture. If we buy a new truck, he has a new truck. Why? Because he lives in our house. And what this scripture is telling us is that we are his children therefore we have inherited blessing and it says every spiritual blessing there is a blessing from Christ what are those blessings well let me name a few for you as a believer you have an eternal future 
You have an eternal future. You have a residence in heaven awaiting your homecoming. You don't have to fear in life because you know that as a believer, you know where you're going. As a believer, you have access to the Father anytime in prayer. As a believer, you have a God who has promised to meet every single one of your needs and provide everything that you need. As a believer, you have a refuge in Christ so when the wind and the waves of life start crashing down around you, you can run to him for shelter so that it won't overtake you. As a believer, you know that one day Christ is going to take his nail-scarred hand and he's going to remove every tear from your eye and there's going to be no more pain and death. Those are just some of the blessings that are in store for you and for me in the heavenly places. This is important for us to wrap our minds around because we view the material world, the things around us, as real or more real than the spiritual things around us. We look at the material world and we think that that's our ultimate reality. And sometimes we have a disconnect from the spiritual realm. However, heaven and hell are just as real as the material world. And as real as the world is and it is today, it's in a constant state of decay. If you were to go buy a brand new apple and it looked awesome, it looked delicious, and you were to lay it outside and came back and checked on it in two weeks, what's going to happen to the apple? It's going to decay. It's going to be a rot. You're not going to want to eat it. Why? Because everything in life is in a form of decay. But you know what's not in the decay? Heaven and the place that Christ is preparing for you. And you and I have the hope of heaven Heaven and hell are very real, my friends, and every person is going to spend eternity in one of those locations. And what determines that spiritual eternity is based upon a confession of faith in Christ. Is Christ your Lord and Savior? In fact, the Bible says that the blessing awaiting for us in heaven is beyond our comprehension. I've had the opportunity, I'm sure you have as well, to see some just beautiful things in life. Probably the two most beautiful places I've ever been in the world is we went and hiked in Colorado on the backside of Pikes Peak. There's this, there's this trail that leads up to a place called the Crags. And basically, it's a, it's a rock formation that shoots up straight out of the ground. Very few people know that it's there. It's about five-mile hike through up to the crags, and there's crystals and things that will come out of the ground. And they have all these rock formations that are just really unique, and, and no, very few people even know that it's there. And so Charity and I and Knox got to go hike that a few years ago, and it was just absolutely breathtaking how gorgeous it was. The weather was perfect. It was just an awesome, awesome day. As awesome as that was, that doesn't compare to what heaven's going to be like someday. You and I can't even begin to wrap our minds around it. We might think, why doesn't God give us more description or more detail to what heaven's like? And the answer is because our carnal mind can't even begin to comprehend that. But someday we'll have the opportunity to inherit that blessing and be with him forever. And in fact, what the scripture says is that God has called us to be holy and blameless before him. There's no more shame. There's no more guilt. There's no more condemnation. It's a wonderful experience to inherit the blessings from God. Second, we worship because God chose us. Verses five through six say this, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus, according to his purpose of will and to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. As God's children, we worship because God chose us when he didn't have to. 
Well, the most dreadful things as a child on the playground is when you have a pickup game of basketball and you have two captains and you're standing in the crowd. Now, especially dreadful for me because I'm terrible playing basketball. How many of you are like atrociously bad at basketball? Okay, there's a few of us. I wish I was good at basketball. My dad loves basketball. I'm terrible at basketball. So if I was to pick a crowd, I'd pick the kids with one leg before I pick me because I'm terrible, right? I am absolutely that bad. And so you're standing there and everybody's getting picked and they're like, all right, Bob's on my team. Jeff, Susan, Cheryl. All right, Austin, come on. You know, it's like, I'm like the last guy up to be picked. And nobody wants to go last. But think about this. The kingdom of God, what this verse is telling us is that the creator picked you. He picked you. He picked you. Of all the people, he wants you on his team. In spite of your past, he wants you on his team. In spite of the things that you've done right and wrong, he wants you on his team. And he picked you for a special reason. He picked you to conform you into the image of his son. Romans 8 verses 29 through 30 say this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he has called. And those whom he has called, also justified. And those whom he has justified, he has glorified. Now, this word predestined carries a lot of weight, and it has caused debate for literally thousands of years in Christianity. This is actually a question I get a lot. Does God predestine some people to go to heaven? Does God predestine some people to go to hell? And to answer that question, we really have to answer a different question. And the question we need to understand or ask ourselves is this. When Scripture says God predestined, Is he speaking of the church as a whole, or is he speaking of individuals? So when God says that he predestined, is he predestined groups, or is he predestined individuals? I think it's important to see here that Paul is writing to a church and not an individual. Therefore, I believe what he's saying is that God predestined the church to be conformed to the image of his son. And as individuals of the faith, we have an opportunity to align with that predestined group. Think of it like this. Let's pretend there is a bus stop and there's a bus coming to take everybody to the beach. How many of you'd like to go to the beach right now? Yeah, you all right, wouldn't it? All right, so they're going to beach. Uh, we went to Navarre last year, so we're going to go down to the, the Gulf of Mexico. The Florida Panhandle is going to be awesome. The bus is going that way. It is predestined to head that direction. You as an individual are not necessarily predestined to get to Navarre, Florida by the end of the day. However, if you jump on that bus with a group of people, that's where you're going to end up and get going. And I think that's exactly what this scripture is saying. God predestined his church, his people to be conformed to the image of his son. The question is, are you going to get on that bus or not? Some struggle with the term predestined, but I think it's beautiful. Here's why. Because God is not a security guard trying to let and keep some out and let others in. All are welcome to Christ. However, when you surrender to Christ, you're entering into the play that God has already designed and where the end is already written. 
We read the end of the book. We know that God wins. We have read the end of the book. We know that God heals all wounds. We have read the end of the book and know that God has heaven in store for those who conform to the image of his son. That's what God is saying when he predestines a church. So when we say yes to Christ, we're no longer outsiders and aliens to God. We are family with the rights of a natural born child. God doesn't grant some access to him and not others. God doesn't grant access to his blessings grudgingly. Rather, in love, he welcomes all of us in when we surrender to him. Paul says in these verses that, his children, that he has poured grace upon grace. There's a redundancy in the Greek, and our response should be glorious praise. When you realize how rich the blessing that God has poured out upon us, it should spur worship in our heart. It should cause us to desire to step back and take awareness for everything that God has done in our life and how every day we see his hand of blessing on us. So first, we worship because we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Second, we worship because God chose us. Third, we worship because we have been redeemed with his blood. Verses 7 through 10 say, says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. Jesus has ransomed us with his blood. And we need to understand that as his children, he has paid a high price for us. Kids are expensive, aren't they? <laughs> Seems like every time they turn up, we went and bought Knox new shoes a couple weeks ago. He has his old shoes, and you know, like the traditional parents, like if you go play outside, wear your old shoes. It was downpouring outside; everything's muddy, and so we're like, "Knox, you need to take out your new. Sh you need to take out the trash." And so, of course, let's take out the trash. It's in a mud hole. Let's put on our new shoes to do that, right? So he walks outside. I mean, it gets everywhere. He comes in, and I'm like, "We literally just told you not to wear the new shoes when you go outside, man. What's wrong with you?" We didn't buy these things for you to wear. We bought them so they look clean, so that we're not embarrassed when we take you in public, right? <laughs> Let's be honest, right? We don't buy them new shoes so that they're comfortable. We buy them new shoes so we validate our existence as parents. Right? And you wore and got them muddy five minutes after we paid for them. Man, listen, as expensive as it is to clothe our children, it was so much more expensive for God to purchase our salvation. Redemption, redemption means that there was an exchange. And the reason why we're here today is because Christ lived this perfect life. He never sinned. He was in heaven. He didn't have to even come to earth. Yet he came to earth and he lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. And he exchanged that for our broken mess. He took our proverbial muddy shoes and he exchanged them, clothed us, cleaned us up, and brought us into his family. Without Christ, we have no hope of heaven. He did what you and I couldn't do, and that was redeem our lives. Our freedom isn't 
sheep. And in this moment of the cross, as we sang about a moment ago, that was day one. Where we were there and broken and in desperate need. And Jesus stepped in. And there was redemption. As his blood flowed down that cross, the debt of death that we owe for our sins was paid for and purchased. And to get in on this unbelievable deal simply means coming to him in faith saying, here's my broken mess, take it. Hear me today as we've been singing about the resurrection power of Jesus and being clean from all of our sins. You might be thinking to yourself, how do I get in on this? Today's the day of salvation for you. All you have to do is turn to Christ and say, you're my God. You're my Lord. Forgive me of my sins. I'm living for you. While Jesus walked on earth from time to time, he'd walk up to people and he'd say, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders had a terrible time with this. They'd always got mad at him and always get angry. And they said, you can't do that. Only God can forgive sin. And they're Their context was wrong. They failed to see that God was standing in front of them. But their content was right. Only God can forgive sin. Jesus is, was, and always going to be God. And he's the only one who can forgive our sins. Psalms 130 verses 3 through 4 say this. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who can stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Think about the power of that. If God looks at your life and says, that's sin, you messed up, none of us can argue with him. But with you, there's forgiveness. God's the only one that can identify sin, and he's the only one that can forgive sin. God's the only one that is holy and blameless and can say, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. That sounds really bad, but God's also the only one that can say, but I forgive it, I forgive it, I forgive it. And it cost him something, and that was his blood running down a cross. Now, what's cool about this passage, it says that in all wisdom and insight, he has lavished grace upon us. Think about the power of that statement. God, who is infinitely powerful, infinitely wise, mustered all of his wisdom and insight and in how to pour out his grace upon you. That's mind-boggling. A God who spoke the world into universe stepped back for a second and thought with everything within himself, his infinite wisdom to say, what is the best way for me to bless and redeem these kids? Wow, that's mind boggling. He didn't hold anything back from us. When Charity makes cinnamon rolls, I want her to make two batches of icing. You know what I mean? (laughs) I've been accused of talking about food too much because I like to eat, okay? You should make some cinnamon rolls. That's what you should do. Okay. I was like, now don't get cheap on me, Clark. I want all the icing on the cinnamon rolls. And God did not get cheap on us when he set out to rescue us and redeem us. We didn't deserve it. He didn't owe it to us. We're not smart enough. And yet, he gave us every last ounce of himself for our redemption. Church, that alone should cause us to worship and sing. When you realize, and when I realize who we were and now who we are, songs should break forth in our hearts. That's how awesome God is. There was a nursery rhyme that we all know. 
Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. It's kind of a stupid nursery rhyme if you think about it. <laughs> Have you ever dropped a bowl and said, man, what I need right here is a horse. I bet a horse could fix this thing. <laughs> you know? All the king's horses. I mean, <laughs> no what? Never mind. Now, there's something that we can learn, though, from this nursery rhyme. We did have a great fall, and we were broken. And nothing's going to put us together again, but a king can. And a king came and ransomed us, redeemed us, and restored our life of brokenness from sin and put us in a place of royalty with him. And that is a reason why we worship. Fourth, we worship because we have an inheritance coming. Verses 11 and 12. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Most people have a document called a will. And it's the desire of their estate when they die. The more wealthy the person is, the larger the will and the estate, and the greater the inheritance of the beneficiaries is going to be. What's interesting about a will is that in most circumstances, they're final. They can't be changed. So the person who wrote the will before they passed away, what they desired has to be complete no matter what. Doesn't matter if the inheritance, uh, the people, those beneficiaries don't like it. It doesn't matter if somebody wants to change it after the fact. None of that matters because it's final. Now, with that in mind, what this is saying is that there's an inheritance coming our way from God who has worked out all things according to the counsel of his will. So God has already ordained and set forth what is going to happen according to his will. And what that means is is that we are going to be adopted as his family. We are receiving an immense blessing and his will is final. As we sang about a moment ago, it is finished. It's what's going to happen. You and I can't change that. The devil can't change it. Someone outside the four walls of the church can't change it. No one can change it. God has set forth, according to the counsel of his will, what is going to happen, and that is exactly what's going to happen. Now, there's some debate among scholars. Was, was Paul saying that, that we are God's inheritance given to Christ or that Christ is our inheritance given to us? Well, the answer to that could be both are actually accurate. God has chosen us to be the inheritance given to Christ. And then verse 11 says that, that, uh, we, uh, that Christ is our inheritance to us. And it's very detailed and laid out in this scripture. Church, we, can, we can't begin to imagine what that's even like. Life is rough, but this is just a blip on the radar. And when we realize that, we can worship with our hearts raised up to God constantly. I want to close with this if the worship team wants to return. We can confidently worship because His Spirit is inside of us as a guarantee of the good things to come. Verses 13 through 14 say this. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Here's what's so powerful about this verse. 
You'll notice that everything we've been talking about this morning is future-related. Good things are coming our way. But this passage doesn't limit the good things to the future only. This passage tells us that when we give our life to Christ, that the Holy Spirit is a deposit of the good things to come. With the Holy Spirit in your life, you are getting a taste of the good things that are coming our way. With the Holy Spirit in our life, we're getting a life change as evidence that God really can work inside of our life. The Holy Spirit's empowering inside of us. We know what it's like to hear the voice of God. The Holy Spirit, we see the evidence of the power of God to heal our hearts and heal our bodies. The Holy Spirit is a taste of the future that God wants to bring into the present. The Holy Spirit seals the good thing inside of our heart so we know what's coming. The Holy Spirit is like the down payment, the first installment of the amazing things coming our ways. The key to all of these things that we've talked about today, the future, the present, is simply to believe. Hearing isn't enough. There has to be belief inside of our hearts. This belief in the gospel isn't just simply saying it's true. Jesus rose from the dead. It's saying it's true for me. I was lost and now I'm found. Because of that, I am living a lifestyle of worship to him. And that's where every single one of us who call ourselves believers need to be today. We need to say, you know what, Christ, you have my heart. I'm giving you my worship. And if you're here today and you're not a believer, your first step is to say, Jesus, I'm going first. I'm giving myself to you. And I want you to change my life.